there is something unique about beginnings, about dawnings, about newness. Even in the midst of difficult and hard beginnings, there is still a thread of hope with every new beginning. So I believe it's safe to say, for the most part, beginnings are equated with excitement. Anyone who's ever had a new beginning in life feels the fear of the unknown and probably the thrill of the new simultaneously. Think of your, think of your last new beginning. Was it maybe bursting with hope that this time will be different? Think of your last new beginning. Was it filled with delight, even in the midst of the unknown? Perhaps it was chapter one of a new novel. I don't know about you, but what often gets me to finish a book is just the joy of starting a new book. How about the start of a new career, profession, or school? Is it the beginning of the new reboot of Star Wars? Can I get an amen? There it is. Is it a wedding day? Or is it the day she comes up to you and tells you we're pregnant? or even a new beginning of a church on the west side. See, new beginnings means new adventure. New beginnings means new opportunities. For some, it means fresh breath. And all of us in here have experienced life's new beginnings. And probably for the most part, I think many of us still have many more massive ones to come. Maybe even tonight. I'll never forget when my wife and I in unison felt affirmed in our calling to move our family from Arizona to Los Angeles. Do you remember that? We felt affirmed at the same time. And we were just headed home, non, like seven-hour drive from California to Arizona. We were headed back after spending some time here praying about if God would have this for us. And we both felt it. And we were just coming home going, I mean, just nonstop talking and laughing and asking questions about what about or when should we, while the whole time we were completely scared. But the right kind of scare that goes with every beginning. There's that tingling knowing this new beginning would change everything. I mean, it's as the great philo- you know, philosopher Taylor Swift once said, this is a new year, a new beginning, and things will change. That's a freebie. It's that change, it's that tingling that we see in the book of Acts. The book of actions, acts is filled with new acts, same acts, crazy acts, miraculous acts, godly acts, supernatural acts, spiritual acts, historic acts, wonderful acts. The full title being the Acts of the Apostles. Now the book of Acts in the New Testament is, let's say, important. Yes, all the books of the Bible are important, but then there are some amongst the many books of the Bible that carry so much weight that without them it would be like losing an oar. Acts happens to be one of those books. A Scottish minister and professor by the name of Barclay comes right out and just says it. He says, in one sense, Acts is the most important book in the New Testament. It's powerful, it's bold, it's touching, it's these small, abrasive, and fast-paced stories with so much weight to every single verse. It's 28 gnarly chapters and over a thousand verses, and with a single plot line. All of that with a single plot line. It's like the movie Crash. Everybody know what I'm talking about? Everybody seen Crash? That's what it's like. Or it's like Lost. I mean, there's so much going on with tons of people, but again, a single story. But one of the main reasons for its gravity is because Acts is a book of beginnings, just like we've been talking about. Acts is a book of beginnings. Theologian professor Clinton Arnold 
totally agrees with my point. He says, Acts is an account of Christian beginnings in order to strengthen faith, give assurance that its foundation is firm. See, much like Genesis, the first book of the Bible, there's a sense of how new created order, new purposes. Life is oriented and reoriented. So all that to say, it's rupturing with new beginnings, with new people, with new dramas, with new joy. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, think of the many beginnings it actually contains. Run over them in your mind. And if you're not familiar with it, let me just point out some. To only name a few, it's within Acts, we see the beginnings of racial and cultural divides bulldozed down as the Gentiles are ushered into the church. We see the beginnings of the first spirit-filled community. We see the beginnings of the Christian movement. We see the beginnings of Paul the Apostle and his Goliath impact on the kingdom of God. We see the beginning of church planting, church governance, church ministry, church mission, and obviously the church itself. And each one of these beginnings is an impacting truth for all. You see, Acts has these prescriptive truths littered throughout its verses of how Christians, of how the church are to live and breathe and work and relate. Church, if we could just get practical for a moment, because this is our introduction to Acts. Not every sermon will be like this. Not every talk will be like this. I'd like to lay some groundwork for us, collective church. I want us to, each week, excavate these archetypal truths and apply them to our context in life. Seeing each truth in the book of Acts as an archetype. Now, if you're not sure what archetype means, allow me to explain for just a moment. Archetypes are these originals upon which forms a pattern ripple effect. So they're a truth, they're a symbol or figure that walk across cultural divides in all age ranges. For example, think of stories. Think of stories. There's something like seven archetypal stories. Every single film and work of fiction falls into those archetypes. Comedy is an archetype. Thousands and thousands and thousands of outcomes. Tragedy is an archetype. Thousands and thousands and thousands of outcomes. Or think of wisdom in film. Think of wisdom in film. Wisdom portrayed as the old man is an archetype. And thus we have the ripples of that archetype as Dumbledore, Obi-Wan, Gandalf, Mr. Miyagi. Does that make sense? Wisdom as the old man is the archetype. I want us to take these archetypes in the book of Acts and watch how they play out within the West Side. And watch how they play out within your workplace. I want to take these archetypes that we find in the book of Acts and find out how they play out within your and my life. So we'll see and study how they play out in the first church, but how will they play out for collective church? So that's what I'd like to be able to do with the book of Acts for our time in it. And I dare say to the Christian and the unchristian alike who are here today that these truths, that these archetypes are, uh, of Acts, they're, just, they're critical. These truths, these archetypes are critical for this life and the next. See, without Acts, the rest of the Bible would not make a lick of sense. Without Acts... Christian life would stumble. Without the book of Acts, this ch- the church would, 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 would suffer in ignorance. Without Acts, it's like walking out of the movie theater about 20 minutes in. I know the ending. I'm done. It's a slamming a book in the middle and going, I know. That's, we need the book of Acts. 
So for those who may not believe on Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life, we have to understand Acts is crucial for not unveiling so much who Jesus is, but what he is doing. See, if you're here and you're not a professing Christian, first, welcome. And second, uh, your presence allows me to assume that you're here because you're somewhat curious about this man, Jesus. Unless, I guess, if you've been dragged here, then I hope this experience isn't that bad. But if you're curious about Jesus, about Christianity, about the Bible, about the afterlife, then Acts is important for you, for your curiosity. See, Acts is the steel bridge of sorts, because Acts is about now. This historical document is about the present day, from then to now. I mean, this is, this is what verse 1 that we just read is going off about. Look at verse 1. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. See, the Gospels begin with Jesus' character and his deity and his ministry. Acts, the bridge, begins to explain his current activity. The Gospels exposed his resurrection. Acts exposes his reign as king. The Gospels began with what he did. Acts tells us about what he is doing. That's the whole purpose to this book the second volume to the Gospel of Luke. See, Luke, the author of Acts, is writing to his, his bro, Theophilus, who many speculate is a new Christian. He's probably rolling in it, and he's not Jewish, which means the, you know, the Bible would call him a Gentile. So Luke, a physician, a doctor, is like, Theo, buddy, Theophilus, I'm going to tell you about everything that I saw. I'm going to help you out about everything I saw Jesus too. That's going to be in my gospel narrative. Look at Luke chapter 1. should be on the screen. This is what Luke said to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as of many undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, my most excellent Theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then Luke writes the sequel. He writes, you know, his two towers, that being Acts of the Apostles, to explain the effects of all that Jesus began, which then turns in the book of Acts, all the beginnings of Christ's people. Commentator Daryl Bach says this, the disciples and readers such as Theophilus can be assured that Jesus is alive. His divine mission is alive and well on earth. I just, I just want to slow our roll for like one minute because this is epic. What must that have felt like for Theophilus to read? Can you imagine? Did FedEx drop off Luke's manuscript? Did he run to the door, sign it, tear it open, I'm just in shock and glory and fear and wonder, excitement and amazement start to read Luke's words in the book of Acts. Look at verse 1. Remember, all he knows is rumors. And in his first book of Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And Theophilus keeps reading until the day when we have been taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive, Theophilus to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and, and, and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. 
Theophilus, this Jesus is alive, he's saying. He's not dead. Theophilus, there's this empty coffin, and this Jesus walked out of the graveyard on his own two feet. And then he goes, and Theophilus, something is coming. Something more is coming. He basically says, I'll report back to you, not just about the beginnings of what Jesus has done, but the beginnings of everything else. What would that have felt like to be Theophilus in that moment? That everything you heard, again, crucified. This Jesus guy who you hope is real is beaten and tortured and put to death. And then he hears these rumors. Alive and risen and walking and eating and praying. All of these rumors and speculations that you just kind of hope is true. I mean, that's powerful stuff. I don't know about you, but when you read this, when you read Acts 1, what does this mean to you? What is this like for you? Believer, what does this mean to you? Unbeliever, what does this mean to you? I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it means to me. Jesus isn't done. Jesus isn't done. Acts doesn't start with Theophilus. Theo, buddy. Jesus wrapped a whole bunch of things up. The end. Finn. Like, that's not what happened here. Acts doesn't start with what Jesus finished, but basically says that was only the beginning. This means that God isn't done with this world. This burns the notion of deism at the stake. This says a backup to the idea that Jesus has come and then gone. Like every other spiritual, mystic, cult leader, religion maker has done. That they've come and gone. Jesus is alive and he isn't done. The story isn't over, Theophilus. The story isn't over, collective church. The work isn't done. We're just getting started. And the same principle is not only true for God's plans and purposes for this world, for his bride, that being the church, but for each and every one of you. Jesus has not, Jesus is not finished with you. All that Jesus began to do for you and in you. The Bible has this verse where it says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I like the way Eugene Peterson says it in his version as well. There has never been the slightest doubt in my mind that God who started this great work in you would keep at it and bring it to a flourishing finish on the day Jesus Christ appears. I know for so many of you that light doubts to an avalanche of doubts slither in and say, God is finished with you because of your God is done with you because you did. And those thoughts are true for Christian and unchristian alike. I'm in the middle of a divorce. God is ashamed of me. I am the worst parent. I have zero patience for my kids. I know God is disappointed in me. I have given, given up on God. God has quit on me. I haven't been faithful to the church. God has not been faithful to me. I have these thoughts and these urges and these desires. Thus, God has abandoned me. God is over with me. God is mad at me. God is through with me. 
friends, the book of Acts, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the spirit of the living God says no to all of that thinking. It says no to that processing. That is defining Christianity by how hard we cling to Jesus versus the assurance of how hard Jesus clings to us. Um, the show Mad Men has this great line regarding Don Draper where Don is leaving the girl for another girl and the one that he's leaving jabs him by saying, I hope she knows you only like the beginning of things. Jesus isn't Don Draper. <laughs> That's some serious theology right there. Jesus isn't Don Draper, if you didn't already know that. See, we're talking about beginnings, yes, but we have to see that Jesus doesn't come along only to make new beginnings, like Don Draper, but our middle and our ends as well. Church, he is, friends, he is committed to you. He is committed to this church. Collective, that is why one of the reasons we take commitment to, to one another in this church so seriously. Because we believe it should strive to be reflective of Christ's commitment. We've got to get that there's nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do to separate ourselves from his love, his commitment. Nothing. Years upon years ago, I was, um, I was this associate pastor at a smaller church in Arizona, and I think I just became a pastor like two weeks before, and I'm sitting in the office, and in come this older couple. And they go, we want to see an elder. And I could hear them, and I'm like, oh, this is, I think that's me. <laughs> like, we need to see an elder right now. And I'm the only one there, and again, remember, I'm, I'm young, and I'm very green. And so we have them, I have them sit down, and they begin to divide, divide, divulge, excuse me, with me that um, one of them has been cheating on the other. And I come to find out it was the wife with the next door neighbor. And they're like twice my age at the time. And I just remember sitting between them just rocked. And it was heart-wrenching, one of the tough, toughest counseling sessions I've ever been a part of. But what I'll never forget um, is that the wife just kept saying and screaming, I don't know why he's still here and they're sitting at different ends of the table, and I was in the middle. I don't know why he's still here. I don't know why we're still married. I don't know what's going on, and she's bawling. She, and she kept screaming, leave me, leave me. And she kept saying, I'm horrible, and I've ruined everything, and I hate myself, and I hate what I've become. And the husband, I'll never forget him, just kept looking at her, with these red eyes just bawling, and he just said over and over again, I love her. And he goes, I made a vow. I'm not going anywhere. And she'd scream, leave me. And he goes, I love her. I made a vow. I'm not going anywhere. I cheated on you. I love you. I made a vow. I'm not going anywhere. I think everybody understands the correlation between that story and the point I'm trying to make now if we think we can separate that our sin, our rebellion, our doubts is somehow this like crowbar that dislodges his faithfulness to us, if that's true, then our relationship with the living God is solely conditional and based upon our doing. Again, Acts 1, let's be reminded, it's all that Jesus began to do. It's all that Jesus has done. It's not that all that Casey began to do or can do. 
It's the age-old question that one of my favorite authors asks constantly. He says, how is it then that you've come to imagine that Christianity consists primarily in what we do for God? How has this come to be the good news of Jesus? Friends, do you believe this about God? Unbeliever, do you believe this about God? Believer, do you believe this about God? Do you believe that he loves you, that he's made a vow, that he's not going anywhere? If you don't know the love of Jesus intimately, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, I'd invite you today to put your trust in him and meet for the first time what ultimate commitment and faithfulness looks like. It's so rad because what Jesus does in the book of Acts is commission his people to take that love that we've just been talking about, to take that vow that we've just been talking about, that faithfulness, that story, the gospel, the good news, and bring it to the world. Bring all of that to the world. That's what Acts is about, beloved people loving other people by proclaiming the love of God. Acts is all about telling the world Tell the nations, Los Angeles, the West Side, Culver, Santa Monica, Mar Vista, Brentwood. Tell your neighbors, tell your friends, tell your loved ones, tell yourself all what Jesus began to do and will be faithful enough to complete. See, if this is true, this archetype, it's this truth, this is the this is the type of truth we want to shout from the mountains for all of our neighbors and workers and family and friends to hear. I love that worship song bridge where it tells people, you know, the people of God to shout it. And it says, shout it, go on and scream it from the mountains and tell it to the masses. See, this is the type of church we want to be. A mountain screaming, tell it to the masses, compelled by the love of Jesus, church. A church that takes the the, the archetype that Jesus is alive and still at work and active and does something about it. I, I hope our church collectively, yes, announces that Jesus is king with our lips and acts like Jesus is king with our lives. I pray we're a church in the West Side that doesn't just want the pastors only to do something about it. Or a church that has more programs than it does converts. I want us to be a church, let's be a church with conviction in our gut, in our belly, sharing the same love that we've been shown. Everything we've realized, that commitment, that vow that we have felt, what would that be unleashed? How, what would that look like if that was unleashed to, the, our, to our neighbors, to our streets? This is what the book of Acts is calling us to, church. But this is what we're going to be looking at. This is what the book of Acts is calling us to, to leave our comfort zones, to burn our security blankets, and to be a part of something so much bigger than ourselves. And because of that, we need to pray.